Welcome to Popcorn in Compliance, a podcast series where we take a look at movies and try to mine them for leadership and compliance lessons learned. I'm going to begin a series with my colleague Richard Lummis, where we're going to look at movies and we're going to focus a little bit more on leadership than compliance, but we'll also talk about some of the compliance lessons learned that you can use as you move forward moving up the ladder to hopefully become a chief compliance officer. It's going to be a fun series. I know you'll enjoy Richard's insights. He's got some great insights. Obviously a little little bit different than Jay Rosen and Megan Doherty, but that's what makes this series so great. I know you will enjoy it. In this episode, we take up Bertolucci's 1987 Oscar-winning picture, The Last Emperor. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, We'll be right back. This is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today we're going to continue our review of movies that have won the Academy Award for Best Picture with Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor from 1987. The movie follows the life of Pu Yi, the last emperor of China, who was crowned at the age of six and reigned from 1908 to 1912. And he was later emperor of the puppet state of Manchukuo from 1932 to 1945. In the movie, his life in the Forbidden City and later Manchuria is intercut with scenes from his imprisonment by the Communist Chinese from 1950 to 1959. The Soviets had captured him at the end of World War II and had refused to to extradite him for trial to Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, who were going to execute him. And they only repatriated him following the Communist victory in 1949. Other Best Picture nominees in 1987 were Moonstruck, Fatal Attraction, and Broadcast News. Other notable pictures from the year include The Untouchables and Wall Street. The movie also won for Best Original Score. David Byrne was one of the composers. Art Direction and Cinematography. And I must say the cinematography is pretty spectacular. John Lone stars as Puyi with Peter O'Toole playing his English tutor, Sir Reginald Johnston and Joan Chen as Empress Wan Jung. Tom, what struck you most on watching this movie? What struck me the most, Richard, was the, I think you hit it on the head, the cinematography, but it was The Forbidden City. It was the first Western movie shot in The Forbidden City, and Bertolucci made full use of it. I'm not sure we saw all 9,999 <laughs> rooms or not, but we saw a lot of them. And for a Westerner, really being able to see this in a movie, certainly I'd seen pictures of the Forbidden City before, but this was just a spectacular feast for your eyes. Visually, the colors, visually, the characters, the architecture, the scenery in China. It was really first class and outstanding in every different way. And that's really one of the themes for me about this movie was the different cultures, certainly between the U.S. or the West and China, but even within China, and the multiple cultures that were going on, the time period when he lived. Frankly, I'm glad I didn't have to live through that China at that 
part. A lot of people didn't. A lot of people didn't. I guess if you were a Westerner, you might have gotten out in time. Had uh, friends whose parents uh, grew up in China, and uh, they got out. But uh, very different cultures, very different value, and a different way to think about not only leadership, but co- not collaboration is in terms of a collaborator, but actually... Although he was that. Although he was that, with uh, with the Japanese, also in collaboration with your fellow man or your fellow business partner or your fellow co-venture partner, however that may be. Another lesson I got from this was on the trappings of power. And sometimes the trappings of power are just that. They're just trappings. And Pew Wei really was one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of someone who certainly had the trappings of power. He was surrounded by eunuchs and servants that catered to his every whim. There was a scene where he, when he was a very young child, ran out of the uh, one of the palaces and he was followed by three or four sets of eunuchs carrying chairs for him to be carried in as it, so that he wouldn't have to walk. And they ran after him in a circle and it was just the trappings of power but that, that only were that. He was in many ways trapped by his eunuchs who didn't want to lose their power or give up their power. He was eventually expelled from the palace. But the character that, one I guess, struck me the most was the one you mentioned, the Peter O'Toole character, Sir Reginald Johnston. He was the tutor for a young prince, and he was the one who oversaw the truth and reported it in character throughout the movie. He attempted to train and mold the mind of the young emperor. I'm not sure how successful he was, but he did try. It also demonstrated to me that sometimes you need to bring in outside expertise. I was not a Chinese tutor, but I think he was a Scotsman, but he was certainly a United Kingdomer, yeah. if I can use that phrase. British. An English gentleman. An English I'm not, If he was Scots, no, I'm not British, sure. British, you're right. British. That character was fascinating. The different cultures, the different values. What is respect in the Chinese culture? How do you show respect, even to this day? They present business cards in different ways. And I'm continually reminded that I don't usually or sometimes I fail to present a business card in the Oriental way, even here in Houston, Texas, when I'm presented with a business card by a Chinese or perhaps other Asian. And I need to be sensitive to that because it means something to them. Within the Chinese context, colors meant something. And I think that's true today, and it's certainly something that's lost probably on most Westerners and certainly most blunt force Texans. And then one other thing that kind of came out to me was an issue that is becoming more prevalent in the greater anti-corruption world, but it's become a business risk when it used to be seen as political risk, and that's regime change. And I don't mean the Sado Hussein, let's kill the bastard regime change, democratically elected regime change. So for instance, as in South Africa, where we saw a change at the very top of the African National Congress with President Zuma replaced, we certainly saw regime change in Malaysia, a democratically elected regime change. We saw regime change in Brazil. We have seen regime change in Angola, where the prior ruling family lost an election and got thrown out by the current ruling family. Those are all different aspects of regime change, although I would say at least clothed or cloaked with an air of democratic values or democracy because of a vote. In the business world, though, that has come to mean something very different. And it means that the it's not, won't get fooled again, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The old boss is going to investigate, excuse me, the new boss is going to investigate the old boss. And he's going to investigate who got mineral concessions from the old boss. And he's going to investigate who got deals with the old boss. And he's going to investigate who set up joint ventures, partnerships with the old boss. 
And if you're an American company or you're a Western company, if you've done business with the old boss, you need to be cognizant of that and you need to scrub all of your operations to see if there's any possible place that money could have bled out to pay a bribe. Because if that happened, you could find yourself perhaps not as publicly being flayed as Goldman Sachs is right now, but you could find yourself on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times from any of these countries. Another thing to consider is your strategy in doing business in these countries. The Chinese right now have gotten a lot of publicity over their Belt and Roads policy. It's an initiative to gain greater traction in Africa. And in Asia. And Asia. The, the party line would be, well, we're going in and we're going to help investment and upgrade infrastructure. Perhaps a more cynical view is we're going to loan a bunch of money to these poor, impoverished com- countries who can't pay us back, and then we're going to take over from the inside their financial institutions. But the problem the Chinese have is it is a very hierarchical program. They deal directly with the top. Whether that's paid, a cynical American businessman would say the Chinese are paying bribes. Even if they're not paying bribes, they're only dealing with the very top. That works while the very top is in power. But when the very top changes and a new regime comes in, as Malaysia has done, they repudiate these contracts. And if Malaysia, sitting that close to China, can repudiate them, you can best be assured that the Africans would have no compunction from repudiating them. The regime change that we saw several times in this movie was actually one of the things that came out, and I think this increasing political risk, or this political risk will increase business risk going forward. So I would ask any listeners to this podcast to consider where are you doing business that could have a regime democratically changed, and what would that mean for your business if you have done business with that foreign government? Yeah, I think those are very good points. The, uh, one of the things that actually struck me as both a strength and weakness of the movie was its treatment of China as the exotic other and something totally strange and alien. In a way, it reminded me of those movies of the late 50s, early 60s, like King Solomon's Mines or even mm. uh, the scenes in Turkey and From Russia with Love, where they just inject a travelogue. It's not, of, so, as of long as it's not the Midnight Express. Yes, of an exotic culture and then there are pictures of the dancing natives or whatever. And to a certain extent, I got that feel out of this. One of the other themes, of course, is the extraordinary weirdness of royalty. But one of the lessons, <laughs> there's a scene where he's sitting on a chamber pot with the entire court around him so that they can examine the results. He believed that he had a kinship with the Japanese emperor simply on the basis of their title. They were both emperors. And it turned out the Japanese emperor had a very different view of their relationship. So I think that was an example of an assumption that you shared something with someone on a superficial basis that needed to be examined. He's not a he's not a terribly likable character. I think in part because he's essentially an alien who really doesn't understand any of the worlds, the sequential worlds that he inhabits. He never really is able to take care of himself until I guess probably in the '60s he was he could tie his own shoes and brush his teeth. But that was about it. And then your mention of the trappings of power, the wife who was addicted to opium and by this point when he was became emperor of Manchukuo refers to his coronation as resembling the inauguration of a factory 
It was totally fake. She knew it. He didn't. But I thought that was an interesting lesson as well. Yes, she was an interesting character in the movie and in many ways seemed a lot more grounded in reality than he was. I think she was, even in real life, although she did become heavily addicted to opium. And then she disappeared in the latter stages of World War II, executed almost certainly, by the, but they've never found her remains. But yeah, her character in the movie certainly is much more grounded than Puyi's. Richard, I thought this was a worthy Academy Award winner. I think it had everything the Academy wants to see in a Best Picture. It was big. It was a big picture. It was grand. It had a sweep of history. It may have been a little light on the story and certainly a great dialogue. But as theater, I found this and it still, to this day, remains one of my favorite movies just for the grand sweep of history and seeing things played out on the stage, on a big stage, in a way that you alluded to with really the, the exotic dancers and the colors and the different scenery in a way that you can't get in any other medium. Yeah. No, I totally agree that it's a worthy best picture. I will warn you, the director's cut is nearly four hours long, so you might want to find the original theatrical release, which is closer to two hours. But in in any event, it is a spectacular movie. It's a fascinating period of history. I wish they had done a little bit more with the Dowager Empress, who is one of the great characters of history, but she did die when he was sick, so I guess there's only so much they could do. And I guess that's about it for this episode This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. I hope you'll join Richard and I again as we continue to explore leadership lessons from classic Oscar-winning movies. I'd also like to tell you about a great new podcast series, which has premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. That's The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DeBernardis, we take a look at some of the top anti-corruption compliance enforcement actions across the globe. It's a great review of enforcement actions, literally 15 years old and coming forward, what they meant then, and what they continue to mean now, all on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.